This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. What mood were you in when you were painting this really happy painting? Were you happy? And it's like, probably not. <laughs> but it's like people, when paintings affect them, they, they automatically assume that you were feeling what they were feeling in that moment, which is interesting. And it's usually, you know, not that you're emanating that depression, but it's, it's, it's not really associated. Welcome. I'm Doug Casina. I'm an artist, a gallerist, a curator, and a collector. And this is Artbound, where we deconstruct the myths and misconceptions of the art world. We have the conversations here with artists that aren't going to be found anywhere else. In this episode, we're going to talk about color, and I have two artists whose bold use of it I'm really excited to share with you. First, we have Ana Valdez joining us from her studio in Oakland, California. Hi, Ana. Hi. Thanks for having me. And from her studio in Toronto, Canada, is Jenna Watson. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. And like I said, I'm really excited to have you two as guests on the podcast today um, because of your amazing use of color. I, first of all, want everybody here to start following them on Instagram uh, so that I, they can see what I'm talking about. Um, before we dive into the topic, though, I want to introduce you to our guests. Ana Valdez received her MFA in painting from Boston University and has exhibited in museums and galleries all across the United States. She's been featured in Juxtapose magazine and New American Paintings. And uh, most recently, she had a really fabulous exhibition at Crystal Bridges Museum. Uh, she's represented by Hashimoto Contemporary in San Francisco and New York and David B. Smith Gallery in Denver. Jana Watson is an artist based in Toronto. She has a degree in drawing and painting from the Ontario College of Art and Design. And she has extensively exhibited across Canada and internationally with over 30 solo exhibitions to date. Um, she has her work included in major notable collections, including TD Bank, uh, the Ritz-Carlton, Soho Metropolitan, Saks Fifth Avenue, and a dozen others. She has an upcoming show where she's also incorporating one of her other practices, which is rug making alongside her bold abstract paintings. Well, one of the things that really interested me that I think kind of during our pre-show interview that tied things together is you guys are both exploring materials outside of your kind of vernacular of painting. Uh, Jenna, you were telling me about an upcoming show that you have that is uh, incorporating your rug making practice into your painting practice. Could you kind of elaborate mm -hmm. a little more on that? Yeah, so um, I have a show coming up at my Toronto gallery and it's called Fruit of the Loom. 
And um, so I've always had kind of a separate practice of making rugs. And I've made like painting rugs before, but this is the this is the first time I'm actually exhibiting rugs and paintings in the same space. Um, and my my kind of my thought process for the show was really kind of guided by um, I mean, I guess working with rugs, there's so much um, misunderstandings, right? I, I realized that like in order to sell a rug, there needs to be a lot of education around the rug and people, they don't understand the value of the rug and how much goes into it. Like it's not just, you know, it's not just the whole concept and design of the artist, but it's the artisan's um, I have mine hand knotted in India and it's like the skill and the amount of time and just like the cultural knowledge that goes into the actual act of making the rug. Um, so this show, um, I referenced Bauhaus. So I have my, the main piece of the show, it's actually very, it was a little scary for me because I am an abstract painter and I actually brought in an image of a snake with an apple and the background of the rug is a Bauhaus pattern. Um, so it was a nod to the Bauhaus, which um, was the first time that women were allowed to um, be involved in an art school. Um, consequently, they were only allowed to do things such as weaving and ceramics because those were more domesticated um, arts. So my the concept of my show is to really like bring the rug back from the ground onto the wall and just start that conversation of the value of like why is craft valued differently than art um, and kind of just coming back to the domesticity um, of weaving. And um, so, yeah, I'm really excited about just kind of incorporating the two of them together and questioning values of different crafts. Well, and I, I'm really excited to kind of start off the podcast speaking to this because a, I designed rugs for a lot of years. I think I had eight lines of rugs that were handmade in Tibetan Nepal. And I just That's found amazing. out that Anna is has two tufting guns and she's oh going to be God, doing so some oh, rug making awesome. for upcoming exhibitions too. I love it. And love it. for me, the tie-in to color uh, goes back to this idea of fabrics and patterns and mm -hmm. traditional weaves. Uh, you know, sometimes you can tell uh, you know, where a person is from based on the color they're using in those textiles or in ceramics mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. in those type of objects that are regionally specific. And I think there's something there when we're talking about use of color that people start to automatically imply about the artist or about where in the world it's from based on color. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that you kind of recognize, Anna, in the way that you use color um, and object in your practice? 100%. Um, I went to school. I got my MFA at Boston University. And so the East Coast here in um, the States is very, very, I would say... It was just very regional in terms of the the grayscale and the colors and just like there was more of like a realistic, um, a lot of darks, a lot of, I mean, the light is so different in Boston yeah. than it is in California. So people right away when they saw my paintings were like, oh, you must be from California or the West Coast mm. or Florida or Latin America or something like right. you, where they, the sun's shining. <laughs> exactly. Where there's light, where there's color yeah. every day. And 
you make those associations. So yeah, that's always been my experience. And even when people don't know me and they haven't even seen my name, they'll automatically think um, that my paintings are from California or Mexico or Mm -hmm. just somewhere South. Right. But I'm actually from Northern California. (laughs) <laughs> born and raised yeah. yeah but we get a lot of light here too it's a beautiful clear day outside right now and the sun is shining brightly and the spring is like wakening everything up and all of the colors mm-hmm. are coming out and I'm a gardener as well so just seeing relationships between colors here and there outside mm-hmm. everywhere you can just walk down the street and it's just bursting with color yeah. relationships and that's really exciting to me. And that's just normal to me because of yeah. where I'm from. Yeah. Do you feel, uh, Jana, that uh, place has a lot to do with the way that we interpret color? Um, I guess what I was picking up on in Anna's uh conversation was you know there was the east coast there was even a difference between like northern california and southern california or or florida light or so Mm -hmm. does it feel like uh, so you're joining us from toronto do you feel like there's regionally specific color palettes that people associate with where you're from uh that's a good question i mean toronto is i mean we definitely have winters that are darker and so we kind of have that kind of depressing light um yeah, that's, that's a really good question because I, I think it challenges some people's sensibility with color because when you're in winter or in a pandemic or whatever, like I think my goal with my my shows this past year is like I just want to go bright. I want to be happy. Like I want to just like I don't want to be depressed. Other people don't want to be depressed. I kind of want to like go outside of myself. Um, so I don't know. I think sometimes like – um, I notice with other painters in Toronto and even with myself, it's like I it's a reflection outside of something that I want to like see that's not there necessarily. Yeah, I think also if I could <laughs> interject here, I was going to say that uh, I think it's part of something that we're not thinking of all the time. Just like with mm-hmm. color, you there's so many parts of it that we just do intuitively. And if you're seeing Mm -hmm. all of these colors around, they're like in the back of your mind. And so you may not go into a painting thinking, oh, I have to use all of these really bright colors because Mm -hmm. I'm from a place that has a lot of sun. You just, Mm -hmm. you're aware of it. And when you're in other places, I, I think like the lack of light, but I do remember when I was in Boston, the sunsets were amazing. And it was probably Mm. because it was the first pop of color I had seen for like the full day. So I I love sun. I love sunsets. I think like, um, someone asked me once if, if I made like, if I was affected by nature and then they're like, no, but your colors are too bright to be affected by nature. Cause they didn't find my work to be that earthy. And I was like, no, it's the sky. Like you mm-hmm. get so many different like fluorescent colors mm-hmm. and it's like the sky's nature. It's like, got, it's, you know, the most ama- amazing part of nature, I think. Well, I I think it's interesting that we're kind of zeroing in on a couple of different things with color already, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of the regional specific ideas. um, And Jenna, you kind of mentioned emotional charge 
that comes with color as well, that you were trying to bring something bright and happy. So there's also this use of color, I guess, to reflect mood. Um, and mm -hmm. then also the reference to like the natural world. Where mm -hmm. do you feel like your relationship with color has really kind of evolved from? That is a very, it's complex. It's a, it's a it's complicated a question. Thing. Yeah. So my grandfather was actually an abstract painter and he was also a rug hooker. And that's where I got my interest and kind of my knowledge behind the scenes of, of rugs. And he never found a market for it. He did hand hooking, which is crazy because I once tried to do like a square inch of rug hooking. And I was like, F this, this is crazy. So that's actually on a, um, where I found the rug tufting tool because I was like, I want to make a rug, but I do not have the patience. Um, so I found a rug tufting gun as well. Cause it, it's kind of like an automated sewing machine and it's, it's so, it's so fun. Um, but it just speeds up the process so much. So, but my grandfather, he, he was very unconventional with his color. He put the weirdest colors together that were so, you would call them, you would want to say that it was ugly, but it was so interesting that it was beautiful. Like I, I can't really describe it, but he was just really, really out there with his color. And I was surrounded by these incredible hand hooked rugs that were just so, they weren't even funk. Like I want to say the word funky, but they were so, it was beyond, it was, you know, when you look at, someone's sensibility and you know that there's knowledge they're, they know what they're doing it's very particular um so it wasn't just random like he didn't know what he was doing it was just yeah so interesting so I was I was surrounded by these crazy um color fields of rugs and um so that definitely influenced my color sensibility because I was kind of taught like it anything goes like you do not match things like matching things is for basic people. <laughs> like, you know, it's like you, it's, it's ugly doesn't really exist. It's like ugly can be super harmonious and it's about how it's about the relationships of colors. And just like people, like all different kinds of people can have these relationships. And it's so it's the weirder, the more interesting it gets. Um, so I would say that that was definitely a huge influence in my in the way that I see color and, and think about color. Wouldn't you also say that a lot of people interpret color differently too? So if yeah, just, I don't know, there's people that are colorblind. So the way they see color are people that are hypersensitive in general, mm -hmm. like myself, I think the way that color resonates with us is just very illuminated or just very vibrant on a daily. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I have to wear sunglasses a lot yes. because I'm just yes. very photosensitive. Are you sensitive to like fluorescent lights? Yeah. Which Either is one of you? Yeah, yeah. I'll start sneezing right away. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. I think that's actually a sign that you have like an extra, what's it called? Something in your eye. Another cone or something. Another mm. cone is your sensitivity to fluorescent lights. I can't leave the house without sunglasses on. Like it's uh, like I noticed it soon cool, as though. I walk. You're out. so cool. You got <laughs> the espresso machine in every room of your house. <laughs> no, the, it's the gallery, and it's a tool yeah. to to keep my staff on point, right? I get it. <laughs> no, but it, it really is something. Like I, I absolutely am very sensitive to to light mm -hmm. as well. 
And I, I think maybe it is something that I've kind of just picked up to because I'm protective of my eyes because I, you know, mm. that's what I do all day is I look at color. I look at mm. composition. And, and for me, one thing that's, again, a very interesting thing that I want to dive in with both of you about is the juxtaposition of just your practices in general. Um, because Anna, you primarily do representational work. Uh, you know, you're working from life in some cases. Uh, sometimes it's even uh, doing a plein air painting. Uh, whereas Jana, you're uh, doing non-representational, non-objective work. Um, how does that uh, affect the way that you use color? Uh, or I, I guess I want to put you guys in each other's position. Like, Jana, if you were doing representational work, would you still be doing the type of color choices that you are doing in your abstraction and vice versa for you, Anna? Well, I personally think like if you just have a certain color sense, you're going to use that no matter what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Like I'm doing ceramics right now and, you know, I could go using traditional glazes, but it's so boring to me and I can't. So I have to like paint with under glazes and make them feel more as though they're a watercolor painting underneath or like a gouache painting because I still need that extreme vibrancy. Um, when well, and I would say that your work on your paintings, they don't necessarily match up to the natural world color wise. No, they definitely don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to give people a visual for their they're, they're incredibly vibrant colors. Um, for yeah, the think objects. about this is how I like to think about it because it's also my favorite reference to just and my favorite film since I was a little girl is when you walk out into the Wizard of Oz and you see everything in Technicolor right mm. so uh, that's how I always want my reality to look because mm. I want you to describe buildings as the Emerald City or my the shoes as being like a ruby slipper mm. or um there's just all, the yellow brick road for example mm -hmm. which these things are so basic in terms of how they're described but I I just feel like I want everything to t I want to touch on every color just because I think like that would be such a fun place to to wake up to is life in technicolor right because yeah. it's all oversaturated and glittery and my use of glittery is like neon actually so it's there's just something that sparkles in it without it actually sparkling um, I get bored really easily. Not that I'm actually ever bored, but it's easy to bore me. So I think color is very <laughs> exciting. And I am such a hedonist that I want to always be excited and feeling mm -hmm. feeling well in this way. So I, I think I just naturally gravitate towards those colors versus anything that even my blacks are like purples. They're dark purples. They're never really black. It's really hard for me to use that color. So. Can you relate to that? Do you have a hedonistic viewpoint on color? I think a lot of painters do. I think I would, I would say I do. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I guess from a, an abstract point of view, like I, when I started painting, I, I, um, use a lot of block color. So it'd be like pink here, red here, you know, kind of just exploring the relationships um, kind of spaced out. And then I kind of like the more confident I got with the material painting, I just started kind of like 
mixing them together a little bit. And there'd always be like certain combinations that I found in my own exploration that I was like, oh my God, I love that. Like it would be like some, I found that because I use mixed medium. So I found that um, there's like a Chinese red gouache that I like to mix with like a Payne's gray acrylic. And they, they erase each other when you mix them together. But then with like a titanium, bringing in a titanium white, they like, they come back to life in a totally different way. Um, so I found that there's little, like there's little things that I found within my mix, mixing explorations that brought out different relationships with colors that I really feel attracted to. So I tend to like, I bring them up here and there in my paintings. And that seems to be like something that repeats. Itself. Yeah. I like that. I think I never really started to understand color and still until I started to mix my own paints. Cause everything had mm-hmm. to, it, it was always intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think like when I started to really understand why certain colors would react with others, it wasn't through a science book or no. just like thinking about psychology. It was just, I'm going to make my own paint. So ah. getting pigments and just seeing how certain, just like how you were talking about your, the Chinese red, which I'm assuming is like a mm-hmm. vermilion or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, close to that. Yeah. Um, and then a, a gray Payne's gray is my favorite mm-hmm. blue to use by the way mm-hmm. it's just it I put it's it into deep. everything it's got some soul <laughs> yeah it's like in every green that I use and every yeah. like it gets mixed into everything but I wanted to learn how to make those colors on my own because I was just curious mm-hmm. about it so yeah just making my own paint was the best way to to learn that and to understand different pigments and how they react to others and how mm-hmm. some of them just when you throw them together it's mud and others yeah. it's just like ooh, it's so elevated yeah yeah exactly yeah have you had a similar trajectory with your color story jana where you started working with color in some way and has it evolved and changed is there anything that you can point to like uh, using your own pigments that's informed that? Um, so, what, sir, can you, what do you mean by like- uh, Well, like, uh, you know, I, I feel like we all start at some place with color and our relationship mm-hmm. to color, and it, it very much changes over time. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's something very definitive that we can look to and say, oh, my God, this was kind of a breakthrough in how I started seeing color. Um have you had any of those kind of aha moments with the way that you use color that very much changed moving forward? Yeah. I think there was a time where um, I, like when I was just learning my material and even just learning what I was doing, because I would feel a little bit, I would get kind of insecure with the whole like abstraction, like especially at openings, because like people would be like, "But what does this mean? And what are you doing?" And like in the beginning, I was like, "What? What? Like I don't, I, I, I don't know," because it is so intuitive. Um, but the longer that I kind of worked with my materials and just kind of like came into my own self as a painter and more confident as an artist, um, I realized that like what I am doing is I am playing. I'm playing with color and I'm playing with paint and I'm. I almost feel like I'm an equal player to my material. So it's, it's sure I'm manipulating some things, but I'm also um, the way that I'm seeing things is, is I'm just letting everything kind of do what it wants to do and kind of have its own life and just let itself create itself. 
Um, so I would say that my my relationship to color has changed because I'm I'm less I I'm it's yeah I just I have found that they want to have the relationships that they want to have and I kind of let them and um, so yeah just say that I I've, I've become more confident in just mixing color and kind of just letting things be what they want to be. And that tends to, that just happens over time. Of It happens over time, yeah. Yeah, of like having a studio practice and just working yeah. and working. I remember when I first started painting, I had, I mean, who knows what they're doing when they first start something, right? Yeah. I yeah. wanted to outline everything in black and like it always felt like a drawing more so than a painting yeah. where you start, color helps you build, right? You're not mm-hmm. doing something that's color or like a color book where you're filling in um yeah stuff because it's already outlined but I think like for me my painting really started to shift when I was like okay you could put this color next to another color and it's Mm. building and creating that line versus you needing to have it encased in something it's structured yeah yeah so I think that was like a fun evolution and I I think everybody kind of gets there at some point if you if people were to do a study of how people start out painting and thinking Mm -hmm. about how to construct an image. It's very linear, right? Like it's very, uh, I guess we all kind of play with color books in the beginning. So, Mm -hmm. or that's how we're taught. But what if you weren't being taught that way? How would it, how would it start? Well, and both of you use uh, a variety of mediums. I, I know, Anna, you do printmaking. There's also works on paper The versus your ceramic practice versus your painting practice versus now incorporating rugs. Uh, for me personally, I've noticed that the medium tends to dictate the way that I approach using it. It's almost like this dance. I, I've noticed that if I try to force you know, to paint with watercolor the way I'd paint with oil. It just, you know, it's, that's just a non-starter. Is that the Mm -hmm. same thing with color in relationship to those different mediums for you both? No, I think like you're learning from each medium too, so you can take it to another one. So that's like why I'm working across the board Mm because one, I always want a new skill and two, told you I get bored easily so I want to play around but um I don't think the color would necessarily affect that at all actually because that's one thing you can bring from each medium is color it's not dictated on the materiality really the color is pretty flexible I feel Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I also find that like with with textiles because you're working on a warp and weft like I almost appreciate the limitations of it because it because then it's like okay, well, I can I can work within these geometric shapes, and um, yeah, it's almost like when you don't have all of these options to mix and t- colors um, with a certain medium, it kind of just those limitations almost help to make create a composition you also just kind of accept them too and work yeah, within exactly. them. It's not yeah. like okay, well, this is. And that's kind of the fun of creativity and learning and working in different mediums is like you Mm. accept your parameters and you work with them and try to make them interesting for yourself, Mm -hmm. even though you're like coming at it from one angle. Yeah. 
Are there colors that are like your fallback colors that you've noticed kind of show up everywhere? And also, is there a color? I think you were alluding that black is one of those colors that you might not really use anymore. Is Jenna, is there a color that like you've just kind of said, oh. okay, this doesn't work? No, not really. I, I stay away from brown. That seems like a good idea. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, and I think it comes back to that when you're like mixing color and then you start getting the muddy color and you're like, okay, I don't know what's happening here. Um, yeah, brown. <laughs> I do want to say I'm not opposed to using black at all. I just think like I would rather try to use something else there that could make it vibrate. And I think like- Bring some with, light into it. Exactly. Like yeah. white with black is really nice because it's a high contrast and that will really vibrate. So I try to find an equal to whatever other color I'm using. So so you, if I use yellow a lot. So I'm thinking like if I used black there, it's kind of like, okay, that's very obvious. But if you used a deep um, Egyptian violet or something that's so yeah. dark and purple, but there's still that vibrancy, especially in different kinds of light, Mm-hmm. It it just adds more. So I think like Do you find oh sorry. Oh no, it's okay. <laughs> Do you find that you like you have a goal to like to like create those vibrations between colors? Like is that a goal? I don't think it's a goal. It's just it doesn't feel right when I'm working right. on the painting. I'm like, what is this missing? It just feels yeah. it's not working until you get that quite right. So I think that's also with composition for me. It's not mm-hmm. just about color, but if the color is off in my painting, then the painting mm-hmm. isn't done. Right. And nobody knows what that means except for me, because that's mm-hmm. my reality. I'm creating those uh, spaces. I'm painting mm-hmm. from life, but I'm also creating its own new technicolor reality. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that was a really good thing to highlight was the fact that color can be as much of a compositional element as anything else in the painting. And and I think if you're just starting off playing with those ideas, that might not be something that you pay attention to as much. I guess depending on, uh, you know, if you're painting representationally or non-objective too. As a non-objective painter myself, I am constantly looking at how my eye leads through a color story. Yeah, I think if you get to... For me personally, if you get too caught up in how something should be and too technical about it, it's going to feel contrived. So I think with anything, you you work on things and you introduce those concepts into your practice, but you do it pretty gradually. And then at some point, it just kind of takes over. Like I used to give myself assignments where I would be... Um, I never, color to me has never been something that I ever thought about because it's just so natural to me. Mm -hmm. So I never thought to give myself any assignments on that, but like with composition, for example, I'd be like, okay, make certain paintings that have a circular, like a storytelling pattern, or I don't even know how Mm -hmm. to explain that, but like, just, I want things to have a circular path in the painting. Now I want this one to have a triangle path. I want, so I would give myself assignments and now I just don't think about it. It just happens. And I I like that. 
But I think if you go into something having too much of a structure or an idea of mm-hmm. like, I have to use this amount of color in this way, it's it's going to feel forced. Mm-hmm. Did you both take very formal color theory? No. I did, and it was so bad. <laughs> I was very bad at it. <laughs> you know, there's some things from color theory that have always, you know, kind of stayed with me that are kind of like some hierarchy of color type of ideas and like what your eye sees first as far as colors um, and how that's like been incorporated into the way we live in the world. For example, red is the first thing that your eye will point out. So I know a lot of like landscape artists, you know, will put at like the one third, one third mark, like Mm -hmm. a little red barn or something, you know, that like Mm -hmm. draws your eye right to that. But that's why stop signs are red Mm -hmm. is because that's the first color you're going to pull out of your environment. It's also why animals have that are poisonous have red markings is Mm -hmm. for the same reason. That's an evolutionary thing. I actually just listened to or watched the Life in Color with David Attenberry. Me too. He's- yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, okay, there's finally one of them out there that's not talking about how the world is going to die in 10 years and everybody's, <laughs> everything's going to go extinct. So I really enjoyed it. Um, also, just talking about the language of color and how mm. different species and evolution has really programmed our bodies and animals to communicate through color um, and our natural selection as well. Mm -hmm. So they were talking about how humans and some primates actually have this really wide spectrum of color vision, but we can't really see in the ultraviolet, which is a lot where the uh, insects have their vision. So Mm -hmm. they were talking about bees and, oh my God, I just, I think I watched it twice. It was really exciting. Yeah, you know, I I just recently watched that too. And he does have one that's a documentary that came out that's like a witness statement for how the world is going to end in 10 years. So he does have that, like you can watch that one next. He also has some solutions, so it's great. <laughs> but but uh it's so depressing <laughs> and actually terrifying. So I have to I mean, I don't want to be an ostrich and bury my head in the sand, but you know, well, you know, there's I, I heard this recently because part of I think something that keeps coming up for me is this idea of mindful looking and, you know, noticing what's coming up when we're observing things. And I think color is a really interesting place for that because it is such a visceral reaction that we have to color. You know, some colors, uh, you know, turn us off. Some colors very much draw our attention to it. But, you know, for me, it's this idea of, okay, so all of these colors, all of these things have such nuance that we don't even know why we're drawn to it sometimes. Are there colors that you just, when you lay down, you just have these visceral reactions to? (laughs) I mean, I feel like we all, we're, we're very excited by color, right? Like... I dream in different color realities too. So I'll have, yeah, like when I'll dream there. And I don't know if that's just because I watch a lot of films and I really Mm -hmm. enjoy a good, yeah, I don't even know how to explain that, but like a 
a film that goes into a different color reality. Well, I was talking about The Wizard of Oz, so something very mm-hmm. similar to that. I'll have dreams in sepia tone, or I'll have oh, dreams really? that are so cool. in, yeah, where things are very highlighted in color that you're supposed to think about, or they have, it almost feels like a video game sometimes. And I don't play video games, so I don't. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, it's. I'll wake up and I'll just be like, all right, that was interesting. What does that mean? Yeah. But I, when I was uh, a kid, I actually, I've, I have not talked about this in a really long time, but I used to see little colors, like little polka dot colors that were like in primary colors, like purple, blue. I mean, purple is not a primary, but blue, red, and yellow. And they would just fly around my head and I would try to catch them. Wait, I did that too. Really? Yes, I would see <laughs> colors coming in through my window. I mean, I yeah, was clearly tripping. Around. Yeah, I obviously yeah. was like having some psychedelic shit going on there. But, but like, you're a child, so. Yeah, but you accept yeah. it, so. Yeah, you're like, oh. And I would just like, I would catch them sometimes and put them in my pocket and like not I tell anyone. Oh, wow. <laughs> I never, I never felt like I could touch them but I could see them happening and yeah. just coming in through the window I could um, see them whenever I wanted to wow that's I sad. used to see them around people you oh. know where I kind of and I think we're kind of train ourselves out of that magic oh. of seeing mm-hmm. over our lifetimes too as we grow like older. auras you know I, I think it was just more like energy I, I don't know how to explain it but it was something that I remember seeing very clearly when I was young. Do you still see that? Uh, you know, I the last time that I really remember doing that was, God, I remember in college at a really interesting seminar where I could just like, it was the it was so engaging and it was like a big 200 room, you know, lecture hall. And it was palpable, <laughs> the energy that was there. And I could absolutely mm-hmm. like see it. Um, but that was one of the last times that I really remember identifying it. I think it's something that you train yourself away from seeing. Well, there's mm. definitely people that train themselves to see it and as they get older. So I, I know that humans have that ability to see chakras and different um, auras in people and in nature and even objects. And I do think that is like an energy that's coming off of something. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's why like color excites us so much because mm-hmm. there is that spiritual element to it of light and just that vibration that gives, that it gives off. Yeah. And it's maybe people don't even, they can't see it, but they're like feeling it with color. Yeah. I remember once and I'm, I'm, I'm sober now. I'm not actually an advocate for drugs, but I got really high. And it was the first time that I I was like, oh my God, I was staring at this blue jacket that I had. And I was like, you had to be in the moment. But I was like, you know, you can touch the jacket, but you can't touch the blue jacket. Mm. And so it was like, like the blue, the color blue is just like, it's separate from the object, right? And I remember just being like, blowing my own mind in that <laughs> moment. But yeah, it's, it's it's really cool how like, you know, the life that we live in, this reality that we live in is constantly changing because of color and because of light. And like those moods that are shifting, like you wake up on a rainy day that's a little bit gloomy and it affects your mood. And it's it's the light and it's the color, right? And it's so, the psychology of that is, it's incredible. Yeah, I'm useless on a rainy day. 
I really am, which is yeah. really annoying and I'll get really depressed. But then the next day when it's sunny, I'm like pumped and I'm ready to get into the studio <laughs> and I'm painting and I'm like, whoa, whoa, where did all this energy come from? I don't know. It's the sun. I guess yeah. I really like vitamin D. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's exciting. Do you both then feel like you're trying to project mood and story through your color for other people? Is it like, are you like putting a happiness that you're like, okay, I want people to radiate this color and this mood. Is that a conscious part of your painting practice? No, I don't do anything for anybody else. It's all for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, chronically depressed so it's it's a very much like my painting practice mm -hmm. really helps me in mm -hmm. managing that depression uh people they look at me and they're or they look at my work and they're like you must be a really happy person <laughs> like I'm i've really, done that too yeah, right i'm like mm -hmm. uh or like, really? what mood were you in when you were painting this really happy painting were you happy and it's like Probably not. <laughs> not that there's like, you know, it's, but it's like, you know, people pick when, when paintings affect them, they, they automatically assume that you were feeling what they were feeling mm -hmm. in that moment, which is interesting. And it's usually, you know, not that, you know, you're emanating that depression, but it's, it's, it's not really associated. Yeah, right? exactly. And also I, really can't paint when I'm going through a period of extreme mm -hmm. depression. Mm -hmm. I can't mm -hmm. even be in the studio. I wallow under the yeah. covers and just, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's just not, I, I need to be in a good headspace to work. So mm -hmm. maybe that's why it's coming out because there's like pure intention and it sounds mm -hmm. so cheesy, but like love when I'm working. And I mm -hmm. think that does come through. Mm -hmm. A lot because I love what I'm painting and I love what I'm doing and I get really excited by that, but I have to be in a good headspace to do it. So you can imagine how this last year has been when trying to work. It's definitely feel a little behind. Well, and I, I think that's why we're all, uh, you know, makers is because there is this love. It's a, it's a way of showing up in the world. And mm -hmm. there, there's an adage that about, you know, kind of that idea, and I think you both touched on this, about, you know, maybe some of these more beautiful, lighter images come about when you're in a darker place. It's because maybe you're wanting to project that into your personal world. I think you can like tune into it more because you're craving it. You're, it's a necessity yeah. to, you're like, it's part of like yeah. yourself. For me, it's like part of my self care. And yeah. I creating, definitely agree. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like creating your own reality and making a safe space for you, for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of did that um, with my – I had a show a few months ago, and it was called Finding Joy. It was actually based on my niece, whose name is Joy. She's like crazy two-year-old, three-year-old, and she – there is the best video on the internet right now of her <laughs> on a show, rocking horse. Oh my god! It, that's where the show started. She's just on. She's wearing this dress that I gave her, um, and she's just on this rocking horse, and she has this curly hair, and she's just giving it. Um, she's so hilarious. It's perfect. But I I ended up deconstructing her on that rocking horse in a painting. And I was actually going through a really difficult time in that moment. And I was literally trying to find joy. And I was like, this is like, 
this is, I am just, I'm trying to find this thing that I'm making right now. It's not necessarily coming out of me from this joyful place. I'm like in search of this lightness and this freedom. And I think that's really like what our job is as artists is like, we are in this state of constantly becoming uh, and constantly striving for like the next, the next thing that we're doing, creating life. Yeah. I think that's a good way to approach it. I don't think everybody does. I, I feel like that's probably how a lot of artists think about things for sure. What kind of makes us really special in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to kind of figure out some more ways to incorporate, you know, bold color into your practices. Highlighters. Highlighters. <laughs> Sparkle magic. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm really interested in going into some other realms of psychology and assumptions that people make with color. Um, how have you had the discussion of color and gender come up with your work in the past? Well, for me, I just think that if you look at my paintings, you would automatically be able to tell that there is a female identified person probably making that painting, not just because it's super colorful, but the objects that are in it as well. And the reference to a lot Mm -hmm. of textiles. And I'm not saying that other men don't um, make paintings that have a lot of color, but I think if you look through art history, you can kind of tell there's a breaking point or like there's a shift that starts happening pretty recently, I would almost say, where color, and I think this is when women started becoming more accepted in the Mm -hmm. art world, uh, it gets kind of used more generally and broadly. Because I think for the most part within um, Western art history and just Western ideas of art, it's very male dominated and therefore very limited in color use because one, I think just naturally men don't see color a certain way, but also color is very much associated with the feminine and queerness and the other and also primitive. So it's just has kind of been rejected for the longest time, I think Mm -hmm. by the white male uh, dominance of the art world. Um, I guess I have a lot to say about that, but. Well, let's <laughs> dive into it. Is that something, Jenna, that you're, that you've had assumptions about, uh, gender based on color? Um, it's, it is interesting cause it's, it, because I don't necessarily, I don't have a subject matter. I just basically have color. Um, I, I I would assume that most people assume that I am a female identified person behind that's creating the work. But I did once, um, I met a client and they 
for some reason were very surprised that I was a woman because they thought I painted like a man. And I didn't have the chance to ask them what that meant. Um, but I found that really interesting. I think it, it might have, um, at the time, I was I was putting a little bit more of an architectural, like I was using more architectural lines in my work. And so I think that that kind of left brain kind of structured, linear thing kind of probably um, contributed to that assumption. Um, but I would, I've never really been questioned on that. So I, I would assume that people just assume that I'm, you know, female identified. And I mean, like, it's interesting how you invited two women to be on this podcast versus two men, right? Because if you look overall at how much, um, I would say, what is dominating very colorful paintings, it would be probably a lot of women, right? You women know, painters. And for me, I'm just thinking of like my roster of artists that I have at the gallery. I mean, look at Daisy. I mean, Daisy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, hey, I, Daisy. <laughs> that, that was a shout out to Daisy Batten. Um, but, you know, on my roster of artists at the gallery, you know, I think I have maybe two white straight males, you know, and I and I don't know. You know, this is an interesting conversation for me because I don't know that it's mm -hmm. like yeah. in the forefront of how I look at art, but I know like when I'm thinking about color, I also, it's part of just my entire aesthetics. Um, part of my decision making is, you know, does this artist match one of my shirts? You know, and can I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very much joking with that. I've had artists who have asked me to like match my clothes to their paintings at openings. And I stuff wish too. everyone could see on his face right now. <laughs> but I, I think it's like this entire aesthetic that like emanates through the way that I look at things. And I think color is such a amazing part of that. And I don't know where that comes from in myself or what those you know, what those choices are or why I'm drawn to certain colors. Yeah. So Doug, I have a question to you as a curator then. So do you feel that you, you know, when you're choosing artists that you want to represent, is it, are you conscious of the fact of, of their gender or is it just like pure aesthetic? Like you're looking for that kind of the color that speaks to you or what are you looking for? You know, I think at some point or another, there's a conversation around that. Um, I don't know that that's the f even in the top several considerations. You know, first yeah. it's it's obviously something that I'm just attracted to that there's some kind mm -hmm. of curiosity for me around, yeah. um, and then it goes from there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I first want to say that I feel like it's pretty rare to have a 98 percent on your roster mm. of being female oh artists. well it's not just female i'm just saying white oh, oh, okay. white straight males oh got it got it got it got it yeah got it i i you know i i don't know what the exact breakdown is but i i'm proud that it's a very diverse group that i represent yeah mm, yeah it's incredible like you're extremely progressive <laughs> okay so we totally went off subject here so let, let us circle back towards... <laughs> should we talk more about my clothes no <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. So uh, I guess, uh, like, could you define for me, like, what you're noticing as, like, a distinctly gender-specific use of color? Well, I think just, like, there's even going towards, like, how more men tend to uh, go more towards design and architecture, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, basically, I think there is that structure and lack of color. And then there's just a lot of association with lack of color with Western white male thinking. And I think it also kind of, if you really want to break it down, goes towards religion too, like West, like Christianity a little bit and how Mm. whiteness is very much considered like purity. And like, when you think of heaven, what do you think of the white space of pearly gates like that's what we're taught right i mean i'm not Mm -hmm. catholic or christian but it's i i know the lore and it's Mm -hmm. it's very um and and how hell is a color that is red and dark so there's very much these color realities of these spaces and um when you think of something other it is color otherness is color so I think that's really interesting and in how that kind of is in our mindsets and our subconscious too of just like the stories that we're, we're brought up in. And, um, and so I also think that could be a little bit, I'm, I'm kind of not being able to really clarify what I'm trying to say, but. <laughs> well, and, and I think I understand where you're coming from on that because it all is really incredibly nuanced because there's. Yeah. There's symbolism that we relate to certain colors. There's ideas of cultural heritage that we relate Mm -hmm. to certain colors, to certain patterns, to the way things show up that are kind of just ingrained in the way that we see the world that maybe we uh, haven't really defined for ourselves. And and I think Mm -hmm. that goes back to this idea of mindful viewing, uh, you know, and kind of understanding, okay, why am I curious about this color? Why is it bringing up these emotions or these assumptions or these whatever it might be bringing up and identifying that in our own histories. Yeah. Who's, is it Ga- uh, Gaty? Is that who it is? Like the theories of color um, way back in the 1800s, there's just like this document of color theory and how it was very specific to symbolism and psychology Mm. and just the, the time. Um, Mm. So I'm really hoping I'm saying that right. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's a really interesting document. Well, and I think we're taught even as artists, different ideas of color relation. I know that there were, There have been, uh, you know, kind of studies on like what colors sell, you know, ideas around that too. Uh, Blue. Well, there's (laughs) there's the old (laughs) adage, if you can't make it good, make it big. If you can't make it big, make it red. I make everything big and red and I think it's good. Okay. I I totally agree. I'm just telling you like these, this is what we're doing. We're busting these, we're we're busting these myths, you know, this is all these like things that we've been taught, you know, uh, this is not myth busters here. (laughs) Or is it like there's a, I want to say some auctioneer had even done this study of like what, 
colors were selling the best on secondary market and what subject matters. And uh, I want to say like it went white, red, blue, yellow, green, black. But who for, was buying them? I have yeah, no who was people. Them? People with lots of money. And... Or people who buy art. <laughs> People with Those lots people. of money. Lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, by the way, both of you guys sell art <laughs> for lots of money. I wish it could be more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I guess my <laughs> my question when I say like who's buying it, I, I kind of feel like that study is very specific because it's not really. Yeah. Because there's not... certain color, superstitious colors in certain cultures that they just don't. Mm-hmm. Like, I think actually, is it Asian culture like red? They're like, do not want to buy red paintings. I don't oh, know. I thought if it that, was that's lucky. Correct. Maybe it was um, pur- like purple's lucky, but you don't. Anyways, I might not be getting this right. So don't repeat me. <laughs> Um, no, but okay. So I, I want to go back to just saying like how, if that study was done of like, who's buying more paintings, uh, with a specific color and what, what else did you say about it? Uh, oh, then there's also subject matter too. Like they were talking about like if a landscape. cow is present or if it's a dog or what kind of dog. Oh yeah. There's all kinds of, like, I mean, you can check data to make whatever thing up you want yeah. right i feel like a better study would be now not about what sells because i don't think what sells is representational of like the the universal of people's experience mm. towards images i mean we have mm. all the data right here in our computers like what images get circulated the most mm-hmm. what um how do trends happen uh, that would be a more, I feel, accurate representation of that because I feel like there's just a specific group of people that are able to buy art at that level. What, were you saying Christie's? Yeah, it's that's a very uh, specific group of people, and I don't feel like it represents every like the broader spectrum. <laughs> so, of- sp- speaking of like colors that come out. Are you guys people who like pay attention to the Pantone color of the year and those type of things? No. No. Oh, thank God. We're not designers. We're not designers. <laughs> oh, I've had artists reach out to me. They're like, you know, this color of purple is the Pantone color of the year. Yeah. Well, maybe they got a notification or something. <laughs> um. <laughs> I heard purple's in. <laughs> Purple is so hot, guys. It's so in. So hot. <laughs> you both had mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that use of color really is this evolutionary journey that you just got to spend time with. Are there other advice that you might give somebody who's struggling to kind of find color that tells their story you know, maybe how to look at it differently or how to approach finding their own color story. I just feel like if people were being really authentic about their color story, I guess I don't really understand what a color story is, but just maybe the reality of how they're perceiving and interpreting and then uh, illustrating color. 
it's just seeing it and doing it as you feel it. I don't mm-hmm. think. Well, or is there a way of looking, I think, like that has helped you? Someone, gave, a curator gave me this advice and it actually, I think it really helped me in my life. And um, she she was looking at my earlier work and she was kind of, she was giving me a critique and she was like, you know, it's good, but you need to learn how to mix. And I was like, well, how do I learn how to mix? And as we know now, it, it takes time and experience. You don't just like be like, okay, well, now I'm going to start mixing color and that's it. Um, and and I so I asked her, like, how do I do that? And she said, just go look at as much art as you can. Like go to every art gallery, go to New York, go to Montreal, go, you know, and just look at like look at other people's work and and then try to create that. And so that's what I did. Like I would, I would go and I would look and I would try to be like, Hmm, I wonder how that person did that. And then I would bring it back to my studio. And this is like, I wasn't creating a body of work. I was just, I was just experimenting and just building up my own repertoire. And, and, and it wasn't that I was trying to copy them, but in a way it was like, I was trying to dissect what I saw and, and then my own voice would kind of come out of that kind of exploration. Um, So I found that um, just really looking at other people's work and, yeah. and just and trying to interpret that and then, you know, finding your own voice in that. For me, it's like looking at work and seeing what excites me and then mm. just trying to emulate that and echo it in my own paintings, like mm. picking and pulling, because that's already your language, right? Things that are exciting yeah. you and you're just picking and pulling that apart and I always think like if people want to paint in colors that are not mixed go for it whatever like Mm -hmm. nobody should I just think like there's so much play with color Mm -hmm. and it's fun so you do what feels right and I think if you start trying to do things in a very forced way it's going to look very forced and with anything and I think uh, Jana was saying this too. It's just making the work, and you you get there. Like anything, you have to practice. You, you have, have to, to put it. the work in, and you have to mm-hmm. experiment. And all of that stuff comes mm-hmm. time. Like nobody wakes up and is like a, a painter that's amazing or something. You have to get from point. Well, it's a journey, right? There's a path. Mm-hmm. It's to just that. doing it. It's and doing it, the work. Yeah. And I feel like there's almost, it's never like, oh, I now feel like I'm there. I'm a great painter. I think it's more like you're, you're at a point where you're like, oh, I really like what I did. And I feel comfortable making mm-hmm. that work. And I feel confident. Maybe comfortable is not the right word, but like a confidence in it and mm-hmm. just accepting what it is that you've made and putting it out there. And if people, you know, say something about it, you're like, well, whatever, that's your, your whatever. thoughts. I think there's been a theme this whole season about following your authentic curiosity. So thank you again for echoing that today. You guys have been fantastic guests. Um, I'm so excited to have had you on the podcast today. Wait, we're done? Oh my gosh. Well, we could do another hour. We'll do another episode. (laughs) (laughs) But I have so much more to say. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Artbound podcast. 
For more information about the guests and what we've discussed, go to artistnetwork.com slash artbound. You can also find ways to connect with me and the Artbound team. We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Artbound is an artist network podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. It's hosted by me, Doug Casina. Our producer is Tasha Clay with audio engineering by Evan Rutherford. Director of podcasts is Jared Mayer. Executive producer for Artist Network is Scott Meyer. Trisha Waddell is the director of content. Sarah Van Patter handles all our marketing. And Vanessa Childers does all things digital. If you'd like more information on sponsoring or advertising on Artbound, go to goldenpeakmedia.com. I'm Doug Casina. Until next time.